0: Well, open your Bibles. 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be. First Corinthians. We've been in the book of Corinthians now for the last five weeks, and we've made it to chapter 2. <laughs> There's 16 chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians, so we'll see. We'll, we'll see how we go, uh, what, when we'll get to the end of it. Um, but if you're just now joining us, let me give you a little bit of context. Before we jump into the text, because the Corinthian church was one of the churches that the apostle Paul, uh, planted, founded, um, and it had started so strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Started, started so strong. And then it started going sideways after Paul left. Started strong, Paul left, it, it started to get, uh, go a little bit Sideways, because they started, here's why, and this is why all churches, and all Christians, by the way, who start strong, but then they start going a little bit sideways in their walk with the Lord, the reason is this, is because they start, they started drifting away from the wisdom of God, and they started adopting worldly wisdom. That is the reason why, by the way, it is the reason why individual Christians go sideways, and it's the reason why whole churches will sometimes go sideways, is because they start strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they get off into some other thing. Some other worldly, they adopt a worldly wisdom. And this is what the Corinthian church had done. And so they started, what, what they end up doing is they started boasting in their favorite celebrity preacher. They started boasting in, and then they started breaking off into factions over their particular favorite leader. And the reason is the reason that happens is because worldly wisdom always looks to that which appears to be really impressive. We're easily impressed by things. Have you noticed that? And so, worldly wisdom looks to that which is most impressive. That which sounds the most intelligent. And that which appears to be the strongest. And the Corinthian church, much like the church in America... They were swimming in the culture in which they had been raised. And so they they brought, they brought just imported all of the ideas of their surrounding culture into the church, never stopping to consider, is this really what the church ought to be about? Should we be thinking along these lines, or should these things be reexamined in light of the gospel? They didn't, they didn't take that necessary step, and, and every individual Christian has to take that step. Because all of us import things into our Christian walk. We just assume some of the things we've been taught are right without ever saying, wait a second, does this need to be reevaluated in light of who Jesus is? And they, they didn't do that. And we can look, you know, we can look back on the Corinthian church and kind of be smug about it. We can sit in our comfortable seats from the 21st century and look on, look upon them with derision, but we shouldn't. Because we oftentimes will do the exact same thing. We oftentimes, in our Christian walk, let our heart affections be drawn away by worldly wisdom rather than the wisdom of cross. Is that not true? We do it all the time. I know I do. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us, for this reason we must must pay much more closer attention to what we have heard. So that we don't drift away from it. Because the natural, the default setting of the human heart is to drift away from the truth of the scriptures. It's to drift towards the path of least resistance. And so if we don't, if we don't constantly come back and say, what do I believe about this? What does the, what does the cross actually teach me about this subject? If we don't do that, we'll continually drift away. It's so Because it's just so easy to let the wisdom of the world shape us, rather than the wisdom of the cross. It's so much easier just to veg out in front of the TV and let some person who's directing a show, writing a program, let their thinking inform our thinking. That happens all the time. And again, this is what the Corinthians were doing. And they brought that right into the church. And so they started boasting in and breaking up into factions over their favorite preacher. And so in verses 18 through 25, what Paul does, and we looked at a little bit of this last week, he tells the Corinthians three truths uh, about God's wisdom. And here's what they were, in case you don't remember. And if you don't remember from week to week, that's okay. I don't remember what I say uh, half the time from week to week. But here's what he says in verses 18 through 25 about God's wisdom. He says, first of all, it will destroy human wisdom. God's wisdom, in the end, will destroy human wisdom. In verse 19 of chapter 21, Paul what he does is he quotes Isaiah 29. And what he's, what's happening in Isaiah 29 is Israel is saying that they worship God. They're worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And they're actually relying on human wisdom. And so in verse 19... Um, Paul quotes Isaiah 29 where God says, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart." So Paul says, "Don't look to human wisdom. Don't look to human wisdom because through the cross, God's upending it. He's saying, human wisdom, um, human wisdom will not bring humanity and the cosmos itself to its appointed purpose. And humanity always thinks that it will, it will. Humanity always boasts in its own pride, its own reason, its own intelligence, and says, we're gonna, we're gonna be the ones. We're gonna unlock what's gonna bring up humanity and the cosmos to its appointed purpose. And Paul says that is not true. That is flat out not true. It will not be human wisdom that brings humanity and the cosmos to its appointed purpose. It's the cross. The cross will. Why? Well, because it's through the cross that death will be defeated. It's through the cross that humanity be, will be restored to, to God. It's through the cross that the resurrection of the universe will unfold. It's all comes through the cross. So God's wisdom exemplified in the cross will destroy human wisdom. Second, it will defy human expectation. God's wisdom will always defy human expectation. Look at verse 21 in uh, chapter 1. Paul says this, for since in the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So in God's wisdom, He's going to work in the most unexpected way. He's going to work in the most unexpected, through the most unexpected means. The cross. That which was despised by Jews and Greeks alike. The cross. I mean, Cicero said of the cross, no person should even speak of the cross because it's such an unfathomable thing. Everybody hated the cross. And yet it was God's means to bring about his purposes. And God is always defying. He's always defying human expectations. He doesn't use the strong. He uses the weak. He doesn't use the impressive. He uses the unimpressive. He doesn't use the extraordinary. He uses the ordinary. His ways are counter to the world's ways. This is why he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. he says His ways always defy human expectations. They are counter to the world's ways. So in his wisdom, through the cross, he's defying human expectations. And then lastly, the third thing he says uh, is that God's wisdom, it determines human destinies. God's wisdom determines human destinies. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about this last Sunday. So I won't re- rehash it here. But you can go back and you can get the message and listen to it. Um, but what Paul says here is, despite the fact that the cross defies human expectations, through it some are called by God. Verse twenty-four in chapter one. Through it some are called by God, and they will those who are called by God. They will come to um, they will come to see and sense that despite the fact that the world calls the cross foolishness and weakness. They will come and see, they will see and sense that in the cr- crucified and risen Christ is their savior. And they'll put their faith in him and they'll be saved for eternity. So he says, all of this is happening. This is all of God's wisdom. It's doing these things. And then in verses 26 through 31, um, Paul looks at him and says, and you've actually seen in your own lives that God uses the weak rather than the strong. God uses the foolish rather than the wise. He, he, you've seen God's wisdom at work in your own lives. Look at verse 26. He reminds them of their own calling. He says, for, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says, think about what you were. Right before you were converted. Right before you were converted to Christ by the message of the gospel. You weren't wise according to the worldly standards. Um, you weren't powerful. You weren't of noble birth. Instead, you were foolish. You were weak. And you were despised. And you got to think, if you're the Corinthians, and Paul has written this down, and this is being read to you in church, you got to be thinking, Paul, really? you got to write this down? So 2,000 years later, everybody in all of civilization, all the way in Eagle Point, Oregon, know that we weren't really all that impressive. Thanks... Thanks a lot, there, Paul. Um, you, you, everybody's going to know we're a bunch of idiots. We were a bunch of idiots before we got saved, and everybody's going to know because of Corinthians, because of the way we lived, we're a bunch of idiots after we got saved. But we have the Lord's grace. But it's true. It's absolutely true. He says you were not wise. You were not impressive. Um, you weren't from noble families, but the Lord's grace came to you. And this upends worldly wisdom. Remember when you were in elementary school? For some of you, that was a long time ago. (laughs) But do you remember when you were in elementary school? And on recess, you would pick teams for whatever sports you were going to play? Well, nobody, nobody with the first pick would pick the kid who was weak, scrawny and two feet shorter than everybody else who hadn't hit his growth spurt yet, right? Nobody would pick that person. But that's actually what God does. He comes and he says, I want the ones who are weak, unimpressive and scrawny. Why? So that the watching world would know that there is a God who is gracious and loving and who doesn't use People, but is for people, and he empowers people, uplifts them, and empowers them. And this is why Paul says at the end of verse, end of chapter one, verse thirty-one, he says, "Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Stop looking at human leaders; they're not wise. Stop looking to secular uh, wisdom; it's not wise. The the only wisdom in the world that really matters." is found in Christ. He says, so if you want to boast, boast in what the Lord has done for you. And now, in chapter two, verses one through five, here's what Paul's going to say. He says, he's going to say, you want another example, Corinthians, that God's ways are countercultural to human wisdom? You want another example that God uses the weak and the unimpressive to bring about his purposes? Paul's going to say, well, take my ministry among you. Because I came to you in complete weakness. And I am completely unimpressive. And yet God used it and gave gave new life to you and birthed a whole new community. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to remind them of his ministry amongst them. And how it was the Lord's power by his Holy Spirit that brought them to saving faith. And Paul will say three things about how he presented the gospel message in Corinth. And it's a model, I'll just tell you, it's a model for all Christian ministry. And um, this is one of those passages in the Bible that is incredibly important to me. Uh, it's, it's a really important passage to me personally. It's the reason I, I chose to separate it from the previous material. Uh, because I think it's, such, it's a central point uh, and it's a central theme to any healthy gospel work. And if you're involved in gospel work at any level, um, there are three elements of Paul's ministry that are critical, absolutely critical, for you to consider. So, with that, let's jump into the text. And what we'll do this morning is uh, I'll read the text, then I'll point out a couple things along the way, and then we'll come back and I'll highlight three traits of healthy gospel ministry that we we see in uh, Paul's ministry, and that again they're critical for us in our day because. Our culture is oh so similar to Corinth. So, let's have a look. Beginning in verse 1, here's how Paul writes it. He says, And I, when I came to you, he's saying, here's another example of unimpressiveness and weakness being used by God. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, he's referring back to his initial visit to Corinth in 51 AD after, after he had left Athens and he came to Corinth and he planted the gospel in the bloodstream of the city of Corinth and it spread quickly and it birthed the Corinthian church in the process. He says, when I came to you and I told you the story of Jesus, how, uh, how Jesus... His, his life and his death, his burial and his resurrection, how it changed my life and how it can change your life. I didn't do it. Now notice what he says. He says, I didn't do it with any highfalutin language. There was no highfalutin language here. I didn't do this in order to impress you. I told it to you simply. I told it to you straightforwardly. He says, I didn't come to you with, with lofty speech or wisdom, wisdom. Verse two, for I decided to know nothing among you, amongst you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Underline that, that phrase, and him crucified, if you're, if you're someone who underlines. In verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He says, I was with you with, with weakness and fear. And remember, uh, hopefully you remember, back in Acts chapter 18, when Paul was there in Corinth, The Lord came to him one night in a vision and says, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Keep on speaking. No one will attack you. For I have many people in this city who belong to me, who are my people, the Lord tells him. And Paul, he needed that word of encouragement because he was fearful. Because everywhere Paul went and he proclaimed the gospel, he got the tar kicked out of him. And he knew every time he went into a city... He knew the message of the gospel is so countercultural. And it confronts human sin and human pride. And he knew the city of Corinth, it flaunted human sin and human pride. Uh, it's much like, remember when we opened with the overview, uh, Gordon Fee said Corinth was essentially the Las Vegas, New York City, and Los Angeles all rolled into one. And so Corinth, it flaunted human sin and human pride, and yet the message that Paul had confronted human sin and human pride. It's the reason why Corinthianized, that term Corinthianized, it meant you lived a completely immoral and licentious life. No wonder Paul came and he was fearful and trembling. Because he knew as soon as he opens up his mouth and he starts telling the gospel, um, there was going to be trouble. And yet he did it anyways. He said, yes, this will cause me pain. Yes, this will cause me persecution. Yes, this will probably cause um, me being banished from this city, but I'm going to open up my mouth and I'm going to see what the Lord does. Amazing. Verse 4, he says, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, the wisdom of the world, the the worldly wisdom. My, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. And of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see the phrase there, uh, demonstration of the Spirit. The word demonstration, it carries with it the idea of proving something to be true. And this is what the Spirit does. And what Paul's saying is because I didn't come to you with persuasive rhetorical power, The fact that you're a Christian is proof that it was the Spirit's power at work uh, in bringing you to Christ. Not me. It's not my power. It's the Spirit's power at work in bringing you to Christ. So Paul tells the Corinthians, your faith, therefore, doesn't rest upon me. It doesn't rest in the wisdom of men, but in the wisdom of God, who again used something and someone who was weak, who was unimpressive. To bring forth his eternal purposes. Do you see, do you see how all of this connects with the previous material? He says the message of the cross is weak and unimpressive. The cross itself was weak and unimpressive in the world's eyes. You, Corinthians, were weak and unimpressive in the world's eyes and yet you're saved by God. And now my message among you, my ministry among you, was weak and unimpressive in the world's eyes and yet it produced new life. You see how all of that connects together? Okay, let's do this. Let's go back and unpack it a little bit. Because there's three elements in Paul's ministry in Corinth that the Lord used to bring forth new life and to bring forth good gospel work. And these elements, again, they're critical for us to consider if you want to be a part of any good gospel work in our communities today. Okay? Well, what were they? Here's the first one. Let me give you, I'll give you all three up front, and then we'll work our way through them. Paul's ministry was marked by these three things. He had an unconventional method. That's the first one. We'll see that. An unconventional method. He had an unwavering message. Unwavering message. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then he had an uncompromising motive. Uncompromising motive. So what's the first one? The first one, an unconventional method. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of god with lofty speech or with wisdom and then, then in verse 4 he says my speech and my wisdom or my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom so paul says now listen he says when i came to you i didn't use the conventional method of our culture i didn't come with the conventional method of our culture to communicate and what he has he has in mind the uh, the orators of, of the uh, Corinthians, the orators that the Corinthians loved oh so much, their style and their techniques. He says, I didn't come to you with the conventional method of the day. Dwayne Lifton, um, let me give you this name, Dwayne Lifton, he is a well-known academic um, theologian. In his book, St. Paul's Theology of Proclamation, he says this regarding the use of rhetoric, in the ancient world, and how Paul contrasts it. Listen to what he says. He says, Rhetoric was the basis of education and credibility in Paul's world. Rhetoric, let me say it again. Rhetoric was the basis of education and credibility in Paul's world. It was the social dividing line between the leisured upper class of smart, cool people and the working lower class of simple, ordinary people. Audience applaud, audiences applauded the clever use of argumentation so that a weak position could win out over a stronger one. They loved they loved the, the display of intellectual sophistication and wit. It was how the gears of persuasion were lubricated. Rhetorical polish got a man's name in lights. And the Corinthian church had no problem with it. Now listen... Paul came in and said, this is not what I'm about. I'm not using the conventional method of communication in in our day to communicate with you. And now listen, we see this, this idea of getting a, a man's name in lights all around it. All around us. We see it in advertising. We see it in political spin. We see it on TV talk shows when nothing newsworthy has happened And therefore, they should have absolutely nothing to say, but because they have an hour to fill, they'll say it in such a way that angers you just enough to keep you watching. We see it in the brilliant late-night monologues of comedians and hosts. And unfortunately, we see it in the church. We see it in the church all the time. Rhetoric, what it is, it's the professionalization of communication, that's the definition rhetoric is the professionalization of communication and it works but there's an ugly underbelly to it because it's all about self display for self glorification and that's where paul drew the line because paul was as gifted articulate as learned as passionate about anyone as anyone But he knew the difference between preaching Christ and showing off. He knew the difference between winning disciples to Christ and attracting a following to himself. He knew the difference between impressing people by his skills and impressing people with what Jesus has done. He knew the difference between getting the gospel out and branding his own ministry bottom line he knew the difference between the spirit and the flesh and so when paul came he said i'm not i'm not using the conventional methods of the day i'm not seeking to make a name for myself i'm not seeking to be impressive i'm not seeking self-promotion i'm not seeking the likes and follows of facebook i'm not doing any of that nonsense i'm not using the tricks of the trade and and you got to know there's all sorts of tricks of the trade all sorts of tricks of the trade: Dim the lights. Cue the fog. Use the right vocalization techniques. When I was in Bible college and seminary, I refused taking, a, taking preaching classes. Uh, I had to take one in seminary in order to get my degree, but I refused all the other ones because they wanted to teach you all the right vocalization techniques. Draw the people in by being really quiet. And then get really loud and project this way and project that way. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm from Butte Falls. <laughs> Think anybody in Butte Falls gives a rat's anything about this nonsense? Are you flipping kidding me? Um, but there's also, I, I, I tell you, there are all sorts of tricks of the trade. And Paul says, I'm not doing any of this nonsense. I'm not doing anything that would cause people to be more impressed with me than the message of the gospel. And that is just so, so wise. Because again, there's all sorts of tricks to trade. Have a pre-packaged media presentation to really impress people. And you know all, what that all is? That's worldly wisdom. That's worldly wisdom that gets brought right into the church. It looks impressive, but Paul knew that God's God's wisdom and God's power It comes through what appears to be foolishness and weakness. And that's exemplified in the cross. And the cross actually shapes his whole ministry, including his method. He says the cross is the wisdom of God, and it was weak and unimpressive. Therefore, that means I don't have to be impressive, because the power doesn't reside in me. You know what that means for you? You don't have to be impressive. My gosh, that's so freeing. Do you feel impressive all the time? You probably feel less and less impressive with every birthday, am I right? (laughs) This is good news because the power doesn't reside in you being impressive. The power resides in the message itself. And this is what Paul is saying. It frees him from trying to be a glittering personality in his preaching to just simply being able to say, Lord, I'm weak and unimpressive but I'm going to trust you that you're going to work in and through a weak and unimpressive method, in and through a weak and unimpressive person. By the way, did you know how weak and unimpressive Paul was just as a looker? He, he, he epitomized being weak and unimpressive. History tells us Paul looked like this. He was small in size, bald, bald-headed, bald bow-legged, well-built, which doesn't mean strong, it means portly. With eyebrows that met, so a unibrow, (laughs) a crooked nose, but full of grace. So he wasn't much of a looker. He was the most unimpressive looking person you could find. Uh, Completely unimpressive. Unimpressive messenger with an unimpressive method. But Paul, now look at what he says. And yet, look at what it produced. It wasn't in me. The power doesn't rest in the messenger. Um, the power rests in what is being proclaimed. And that was that's what Paul's emphasis is. He says, it's not about me. He's completely unimpressive. And that's important to consider because there is nothing that looks more unimpressive in our day. There's nothing that looks weaker in our day with all of our high-budget technology our virtual reality immersive experiences, our slick advertising. Nothing looks weaker than opening up the Bible and simply communicating it. And this is why so many churches go away from it. It's why so many churches have fog machines. It's why so many preachers fly in on whatever the things are. They strap them to the wall. Uh, it's why they give away cars in churches. It's because they, they forget that the message of the gospel is actually the power. That's why. Just proclaiming what God has done in and through Christ and trusting that God will use that to transform people's lives, that looks so weak and unimpressive. And yet, it is the God-ordained method that he has chosen to use. Skip back up to verse 21 of chapter 1. Look at it again. Look at what Paul says. He says, For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. And, and get out of your mind preaching from a pulpit when you read the word preach. It means communicate. Okay. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then in Romans chapter 10, Paul says this. He says, how, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, now think about it for a second because we have we have so much technology. We have so much uh, immersive experiences. We have all this budgets. The most weak and unimpressive thing in the world is for somebody to open up their Bible. Week after week. Gather with the people of God. And say, this is where the power actually resides. And yet, my hunch is, if you're a Christian, you know that to be the case. Is that not true? That's absolutely the case. And Paul says, this is God's ordained means of people coming to know Christ, is through the preaching of the word. He says, that's actually where the action is. Now, let me say something else. This is not an argument for long, dull, rambling, monotone sermons. Some of you have sat through some of those. You can shake your head no. You can say no to me. It's okay. Um, I've sat through many of those in my years, and that has nothing to do with Paul's point here. Instead, what it is, it's an argument for recognizing that the power to save doesn't come from the polish, doesn't come from the pranks, doesn't come from the presentation Where it comes from is the proclamation of Jesus and what he has done. So you want to be a part of a healthy gospel work? Find a church where the leadership is trying to help you be more impressed with Jesus than with the person in the pulpit. More impressed with Jesus than the leader of the church. Where their aim is trying to make Jesus famous, not themselves. Right? Every Every church and every preacher has one job. It's to make Jesus famous. And when they get that crossed with their own ministry, it's a recipe for disaster. They have one job, make Jesus famous by working all the way through the scriptures, taking out every piece of scripture, how and how it points to Christ. That's the message. That's what Paul's doing here. So he has this unconventional method, but the Lord blessed it, brought forth new converts and a church was birthed. Second thing we see here is he had an unwavering message unwavering message look at verse 2 he says for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified you ever wonder why paul included that phrase and him crucified it would have been so easy for him just to write for i decided to know nothing amongst you except jesus christ And I was with you in fear and trembling. Why did he include that phrase? Here's the reason why. He wanted to be explicit about what the content of the gospel is. Paul was not content for Jesus simply to be seen as Jesus the exemplar. Someone whose example we must follow. He did not want Jesus to be defined as Jesus the ethicist. A good moral teacher. What Paul's pressing is Jesus has to be seen and he has to be known as the divine savior. And if he's not known as that, he has to be known as that. He's nothing less of that. Nothing less than that. He is the divine savior or he's nothing. Because humanity doesn't just need an example to follow. Humanity doesn't need simply morality. We need a savior who died for us who will forgive us of our sins, and more than that, who rose from the grave and will give us eternal life. And if we don't have that, Paul says, we don't have the gospel. And Paul has this unwavering commitment to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, in humility, left his throne above and came to earth as a man, And died the death of a criminal bearing our guilt. And then rose again, defeating death, so that anyone and everyone who comes to him in simple but genuine repentant faith can be forgiven of their sins and granted new life in his name. And Paul, he was absolutely unwavering in that. He will not let you off the hook by saying he's just a good moral teacher. He will not let you off the hook saying he's just an example for us to follow. No, 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 no. He's the divine Savior. And you want to be a part, again, you want to be a part of a healthy church? Find a church and you want to be a part, you want to be involved in good gospel ministry? Be a part of a church, be a part of a community that keeps the main thing the main thing. Not three tips for a better sex life over here. Not five steps or five pieces of instruction to get your dogs to listen to you and obey you. Christ crucified. Christ Crucified. The main thing, not a church that says, let me give you the power of positive thinking. No. The main thing has to has to say the main thing. And again, it's so easy to be sidetracked. It's so easy to be sidetracked by worldly wisdom. What will put butts in the seats? So darn easy. Because butts in the seat equals buck, bucks in the coffers. And that's really easy. I was telling the guys on Friday morning, there's a church in the valley right now who's offering a, a United States Constitution class. And it came across my screen the other day, and I thought to myself, you've got to be freaking kidding me. This is what we're doing? Um, now, is the Constitution a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. Is it going to be, lead anybody to repentant faith in Jesus Christ? No. Uh, we're a biblically illiterate culture who is adrift theologically. And we're going to call people together to study the Constitution? Are you kidding me? It doesn't bring forth regeneration, but it gets people in the seats. You see, it's so, now listen, sorry if I'm preaching a little angry, uh, listen, it's so easy to see the gospel of Christ as simply, this is an old Keller quote, as the ABCs of the Christian faith, and you think, well, I've got it mastered, and now we can move on to really important things. No, 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 that's, that's crazy making. What needs to happen is we need to see, we need to see the gospel as the full spectrum of the human life and sort all of our thinking through the grid of the gospel and apply Jesus' words and Jesus' ways to all facets of our life. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes first for the Jew and for, then for the Gentile. And so Paul, he's unwavering in his message. Here's the third element I want you to see. He had an uncompromising motive. Uncompromising motive. Look at verse 3. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration. Again, think of proof. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul knew when he came into Corinth, he knew what they wanted from him. He knew they wanted oratory. They they wanted him to have oratory skills. He knew they wanted him to stride onto the platform of public discourse with this cocky self-assurance of a skilled oratory. But Paul, as a minister of Christ, would not stoop to that level. There's a Greek uh, historian by the name of Scopelian, And he was commenting on the attitudes of the the uh, the orators of Paul's day. And he's speaking of one who was essentially the Jordan Peterson of his day. And so he was skilled and he was a very popular public speaker. He said this. He said, he would appear before his audiences not with the bearing of a timid speaker, but as befitted one who was entering to win glory for himself and confident he could not fail. Now contrast that with Paul. Because Paul says, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And he spoke so simply. Remember, he says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech. He spoke so simply. Why? Why wouldn't he change? Well, what was his motive? You know what his motive is? Your long-term good. Your long-term good. So that your faith might not rest in an imperfect man. Because it's really easy when, when preachers... Preachers. It's really easy when pastors um, start talking about God. God is sometimes in our minds abstract. And a lot of times people place their hope in a pastor. They'll find their identity in a pastor. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not good. Your long-term, what what really needs to happen for your long-term good is that your faith would rest in the wisdom and the power of God, not in a pastor. Paul knew that as he simply communicated the truth about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit would be at work. That the Spirit would fly in under the radar of people's prejudices. That He would enter into their minds and their hearts, proving to them that Christ was indeed the crucified Savior. And then He was risen and alive. And He's the wisdom and the power of God to work and to transform lives, to birth new communities, and to change human destiny. And so his motive, Paul's motive here, was for their faith not to rest in him because he was just a man, an imperfect man. He himself said, I'm the chief of sinners. He wants their faith to rest exclusively in the perfect man, Christ Jesus, and for them to build their lives and their communities upon him. And the account ends right there, and we'll do the same. Let me close just by offering three pieces of advice. Three pieces of advice on representing the Lord well in our culture. Because again, we're a culture that is so darn similar to Corinth. We love to be impressed. We loved, We love large, we love glittering personalities. And yet the Lord works through unimpressive people all the time. It is the means He uses. Ordinary, unimpressive people. So how do we represent the Lord well in our day and age? Let me give you three pieces of advice. Here's the first one. By communicating the message of the gospel simply, by communicating the message of the gospel real simply, as simply as you can, Paul, what he would do is he would simply tell people who Jesus is, what he's done, and the grace that Jesus had given Paul. And you want to be effective in our day and in our culture? Um, Build a long-term relationship with the people that the Lord has placed in your lives. Build long-term relationships. And then when the opportunity presents itself, because you've built a long-term relationship, they have confidence in you, and at that level, at that moment, take every advantage of it. And communicate the message of the gospel simply and lovingly. Simply and lovingly. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to answer every theological question they may have. You don't need to engage in every silly theological argument. Keep a focus, though. Keep a focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I decided to know nothing amongst you other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Keep a focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and tell others what He's done for you. Yeah? That's the first one. Communicate the message of the gospel simply. Secondly, rely on the work of the Spirit fully. Rely on the work of the Spirit fully. God uses ordinary people who rely on the work of the Holy Spirit, who relentlessly rely on the work of the Holy Spirit, to, they, they trust that the Holy Spirit, when they, start, when they start communicating the message of the gospel, they trust that the Holy Spirit will show up, and He will show out. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, because mere intellectual persuasion, mere mental assent, does not save people. Salvation comes... By the heart-changing power of the Holy Spirit, as the gospels proclaimed. So you want to be effective in our day? Um, prepare as if everything depended upon you. Honestly, prepare as if everything depended upon you. And then communicate as if everything depends upon the Holy Spirit. Because it does. Well, what do you mean prepare? I actually have to prepare. Yes, you do. Um, you should be thinking all the time. If this person asks me a question about Jesus, how will I respond? If I get an opportunity to share my testimony in this environment with these people, what will I say? You should prepare. You should Actually, you should probably write it out. I, I, I was listening to Ray Steadman's autobiography the other day. Um, and he used to go out. He had cows. And so he would go out and he would tell his cows the gospel. And I thought, you know... Well, I have lots of thoughts about that. Those cows might listen better than some humans. Um, but he would take the time. He said, "I'm out here feeding the cows. I might as well work on my gospel presentation." And he would take the time, and he would he would just share the gospel with the cows. And he thought, "This is good. when when the time comes, I'm going to be prepared." So prepare. Write it out. Take take some time to think through what you will say. If a friend asks you, "What's what's why do you have hope in the person of Jesus Christ?" I darn well hope you have an answer for that. So prepare. Prepare as if it all depends upon you. And then when you communicate, communicate in such a way that it all depends upon the Holy Spirit because it really does. And that actually frees you. If you know it, it, it's the Holy Spirit who saves, it's not me, it frees you to simply share the gospel. And what it will do if somebody actually is converted while you're communicating, it keeps you from being too proud of yourself. It's not another notch in your Bible because it's the Spirit that produced it, right? Not you. So rely on the work of the Holy Spirit. Prepare as if it all depends upon you, but then communicate it as, as if it all all depends upon the Holy Spirit. And here's the third thing: come to the Lord's table regularly. You want to be effective in our community, in our community? You got to come to the Lord's table regularly. Why? Here's why, and that's why the guys are coming forward right now. The ushers are going to come forward and pass out the elements. You come to the Lord's table because it reminds you that Christ was crucified for you. For you personally. And it reminds you that the grace you've been given is not by your works. It's not by your religious discipline. It's not through your moral effort. It's simply about the Lord's grace. And you know what that does? That enables you to go to a someone who's a sinner and said, hey, I'm one too. (laughs) As a fellow sinner, let me tell you about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that keeps us humble. It keeps the message of the gospel graceful when we communicate it with other people. And it keeps us centered on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll sing as the guys are passing out the elements. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for uh, Paul's methodology and his message that was not focused on Paul, but was exclusively focused on the person of Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that at whatever level of gospel work that we're involved in, um, we would simply be the vessels you choose to use in that moment, To point people to Jesus, to point people towards your grace, your love, your mercy. And that ultimately people would find and would rest their faith in you and not in a person. We trust you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.